Of all the stories and accounts of Genesis, I've always liked the Jacob narratives best. So far in our study of Genesis, we have become well acquainted with the importance of righteousness to God. Adam and Eve and all of us have been denied the privileges of living in an earthly garden paradise because they fell from a righteous relationship with God. Cain kills Abel and the very ground beneath him rejects him. In all the earth, only Noah was a good man and blameless in his time, and only Noah and his family are saved from the deluge. Abraham and Sarah are chosen from among all the peoples of the earth, and despite any flaws Abraham has, he is counted as being righteous by God because of his faith. While Isaac doesn't get much direct attention focused on him as a man, he kind of just bridges the gap between Abraham and Jacob. We have to remember that he was perfectly willing to let his father sacrifice him if that was God's will. At least no objection from him is recorded in Scripture. So far in all these accounts, we know when people are good and we know when they are bad, and whether they are heroes or villains depends directly upon their character. From the very beginning of Jacob's story, things are not right by the standards set by biblical precedent. We have to keep in mind the nature and purpose of the narratives we have been reading. It is true that in Genesis, many stories and accounts were pieced together from different sources and different regions. Many of them got reworked in light of significant events that called for reinterpretation of Israel's prehistory. One of the most significant events came very late, the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC. But that does not mean that the various narratives of Genesis are independent scraps that have been forced together without concern for providing a cohesive account of what God was doing in the world before the Exodus. Genesis from beginning to end is about beginnings. It begins with how everything that is got created by a wise God who found goodness in all that was created. When the first humans messed things up, seriously messed things up, God at first seemed stymied in finding a way to bring the world back to the goodness it was meant to reflect. God almost destroys everything because when the Lord saw how great the wickedness of human beings was on earth and how every desire that their heart conceived was always nothing but evil, the Lord regretted making human beings on the earth, and his heart was grieved. But even after the world is given a whole new start with Noah, it goes right back to its evil ways. God, however, has made a covenant with all the earth. God will never again destroy the world for its evil. Instead, God will work at building a righteous community, a holy nation, that will be formed by God starting with just one good man and one good woman, Abraham and Sarah. God will make a nation from their offspring, and through them all the nations of the earth will call themselves blessed. Genesis tells the story of how God's plan of salvation got started. It is a story full of ups and downs. God makes incredible promises, and then every succeeding event seems to pose an insurmountable problem in the way of the promises. Abraham's offspring are to become a great nation and possess the land God has promised. But Abraham and Sarah can't have children. Long after nature has removed any possibility of Sarah having a child, 
God comes to them in a special visit, and Sarah conceives and bears the child of promise, Isaac. Then it is God who puts the biggest stumbling block of all in the way of the promise. God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Once again, at the very last moment, God intervenes. With Abraham's knife poised to plunge into the promised boy's heart, the angel of the Lord stays Abraham's hand just as the real sacrificial ram bleats from the nearby brambles. The story of Jacob is central to this narrative concerning God's endeavors to put the world on the path to righteousness. Jacob is, in his own lifetime, key to the fulfillment of God's plan to begin a nation that will honor the call to righteousness. And yet Jacob cannot be called righteous, can he? From the very beginning, this man is out to make sure his will prevails above all others. His mother, Rebecca, despairs of having children. Her husband, Isaac, intercedes with God on her behalf, though, and she conceives twins. Normally, we would expect her to consider herself twice blessed. Within her womb, these twins are at war with each other, however, and she fears for her own survival. But God reveals to Rebecca the true nature of her turmoil, and so from before their birth, she knows whom God favors. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples are separating while still within you, but one will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Perhaps Rebecca is just following God's lead, but she has a favorite son and clearly does not fail to keep it a secret, at least from Jacob, who is her favorite. You remember the Smothers Brothers? Many of you will. Even before their television series, I would listen to them on the radio. One of my earliest fascinations was with radio. I can still distinctly remember my first transistor radio. It had six transistors. I was happier than any spoiled kid today with an iPhone. I could jack an earphone into that battery-powered radio, which was no bigger than a fat ice cream sandwich, tuck it under my pillow, and listen at night without my mom realizing how late I was staying up. I grew up in a small Idaho city. There was only one local radio station that broadcasted after sunset. After the 10 p.m. news, they had 20 minutes devoted to stand-up comedy, which they called A Moment of Madness. That's where I discovered Alan King, Shelley Berman, Bob Newhart, Bill Cosby, and of course, the Smothers Brothers. I also discovered that even if my mom couldn't hear my radio, it was frequently impossible to hide a good belly laugh. But my mom proved more indulgent than I thought. She would often come in at 10.30 to make sure I had pulled the earphone out. Anybody acquainted with the story of Jacob and Esau can appreciate Tommy Smothers' famous retort to his younger brother, Dick. Mom always liked you best. Tommy Smothers was, if you will, the Esau of that duo. He was certain his mom clearly loved his younger brother Dick best. But why had God chosen Jacob over Esau? It's a biblical mystery that never gets explained in the Bible. And it's an oft-repeated mystery as well. Why did God accept Abel's sacrifice and reject Cain's? What did God have against Ishmael that he had to be rejected in favor of Isaac? Why will Joseph be the most favored of Jacob's sons? Why will King Saul be rejected and the young David be given a dynasty? Why will the first be last and the last first? We learn quickly that Jacob is not righteous, but he has been chosen. 
He is therefore holy. Holy means to be set apart for God. It does not, in every circumstance, mean to be good or righteous. From the very beginning, Jacob is shown to be a devious trickster that will do anything with the help of his mother to get ahead of his older brother Esau. And yet his every deed or misdeed moves the plan of God forward. Jacob is holy because the call of God is inescapable in his life. His life will serve God no matter what Jacob tries to do or make of his life. And there, perhaps, lies a partial answer concerning God's apparent partiality. God's choices are made for God's own purposes, and they will absolutely make all the difference in the world. And it is in this respect that Christianity has a special perspective on salvation history. From within the perspectives of Catholic, Orthodox, and mainstream Protestant theologies, God's partiality in salvation history is seen as the trajectory of a plan of salvation that is ultimately universal. God chose Isaac over Ishmael because God was beginning to make a people for himself that had to see itself as special and distinct precisely because God had chosen them. But God chose Israel so that from Israel, the good news of salvation would spread to all the peoples of the world. Remember, God chose Abraham so that all the nations of the world would be blessed. No one is clearer on this than St. Paul in his letter to the Galatians. Scripture, which saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, foretold the good news to Abraham, saying, Through you shall all the nations be blessed. And so the Christian tradition urges us to see God's favoritism for certain individuals in salvation history as part of a larger plan to shower God's favor on everyone through the salvation offered in Jesus Christ. Which is a good thing, because I would hate to have to study Jacob as a source of moral enlightenment. But as a fascinating character, as a lovable rogue, and a sometimes hapless rascal, he has no equal in all of sacred scripture. He comes out of the womb hot on the heels of his older brother, clutching Esau's heel, in fact, in the manner of someone determined to trip the other up, to supplant Esau's rights. And that is what we are told the name Jacob means, a supplanter, someone whose purpose in life is to undermine the proper order of things. Jacob and Esau are twins, but they are as different as night and day. Taking into account their differences, one would be tempted to give Esau the advantage. He is big, brawny, hairy, and a hunter. Esau is a man's man, and Jacob is, well, a mama's boy. When the boys grew up, we read in Genesis 25:27, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, whereas Jacob was a simple man who stayed among the tents. Staying among the tents means he stayed at home near his mother. Esau, the hunter who knows how to roast wild game, is also his father's favorite. But Rebekah prefers Jacob, and that makes all the difference. Her favoritism shouldn't have made so much a difference, however, since Esau is the firstborn, and he will eventually be given Isaac's blessing. This patriarchal blessing might be thought of as the equivalent of a will, but more accurately, it has within the context of the patriarchal narratives a prophetic power to name one's destiny. 
We also know the big secret force behind Jacob's destiny. God has chosen Jacob. The interesting thing about that, though, is that none of the characters is a puppet. Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and even Esau remain exactly who they are, acting in perfect consistency with their own innermost character. Esau, in fact, proves to be his own worst enemy. Returning from an unsuccessful hunting venture, he finds little brother stirring a vegetable stew. Uh, can we picture Rebecca putting an apron around Jacob as he helped her out in the kitchen? Whatever. Esau is hungry and wants some of the stew, which, like him, is ruddy in color, as if it's been made just for him. This is where we discover that Jacob is no namby-pamby pushover. He knows what he wants, and he isn't afraid to ask for it. He offers Esau a trade, Esau's birthright for a warm bowl from Jacob's pot. The surprise is that Esau accepts the offer. This is what we read in Genesis. Look, said Esau, I am on the point of dying. What good is the right as firstborn to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he sold Jacob his right as firstborn under oath. Jacob then gave him some bread and the lentil stew, and Esau ate, drank, got up, and went his way. So Esau treated his right as firstborn with disdain. Esau sold his birthright under oath. This morally undermines him, but how righteous is Jacob for demanding it? It will also require more than anything Jacob can think up to collect. It will all hang on his mother's craftiness. Rebekah hears her aging and nearly blind husband's plan to bless Esau. Esau is to bring Isaac some roasted game and then be blessed. We all know that Esau isn't always successful in his hunting efforts, so it may take a little while for Esau to kill and cook this blessing day meal. While he is out hunting, Rebekah has cooked up a plan. She sends Jacob to kill two domestic goats, which she will prepare in just the way Isaac likes best. She then dresses Jacob in Esau's outdoorsy-smelling clothes and puts wool on his forearms so he will feel hairy like Esau. Serve your father the meal and take the blessing meant for Esau, she tells him. Jacob fears a curse rather than a blessing, but Rebekah convinces him that she will take the curse. Jacob takes the meal into his father, who seems dubious. Is this really Esau? Could Isaac actually suspect he is about to be duped? After touching Jacob's woolly hand and eating the roast, Isaac is finally convinced and gives Jacob Esau's blessing. Rebekah's plan to steal the blessing for her favorite son has worked, but winning this prize will haunt Jacob for years to come. Rebekah has Isaac send Jacob to her brother's home in far-off Haran, probably just north of Syria in south-central Turkey, ostensibly to marry within Abraham's clan but a deeper motive is to escape Esau's wrath. Once Isaac realized he had been duped and had given his blessing to Jacob, he told Esau he had no blessing left for him. Esau determined then and there to kill his brother, and Rebekah sensed it. You've read this story, and you've studied it. What happens at Bethel during his flight from Esau and his journey to find a wife in Haran, however, is key to understanding God's role in the devious life of Jacob. When he came upon a certain place, he stopped there for the night, since the sun had already set. Taking one of the stones at the place, 
he put it under his head and lay down in that place. Then he had a dream. A stairway rested on the ground, with its top reaching to the heavens, and God's angels were going up and down on it. And there was the Lord standing beside him and saying, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you are lying I will give to you and your descendants. God renews with Jacob the promises God made first with Abraham and later with Jacob's father Isaac. Whatever birthright Esau thought he missed out on by failing to receive Isaac's blessing, it is God's blessing of Jacob here at Bethel that is the ultimate birthright of Abraham's descendants. Jacob clearly doesn't deserve what God promises him, but then no one of us will ever deserve what God has promised us either. The promises of God are a gift, and in Jacob's case, it is a gift Esau rejected. He disdained his birthright. Jacob's story by no means ends here. This is really just where it begins. This is where Jacob encounters God. Jacob will only slowly learn to respect the gift that is given to him at Bethel. It will take years and an abundance of suffering for him to grasp any semblance of what the call of God means on his life. When he reaches Haran without any gifts to offer as a bride price for Laban's younger daughter, he will have to work seven years for her, only to discover that he is not the only one who is capable of deep, calculated deception. Laban gives him his older daughter Leah in disguise on his wedding night, and it will be seven more years of servitude before Jacob can marry his true love. But there are still many tough lessons ahead for Jacob, and as we shall see next week and the week after, he will take his time learning them. Hopefully, we're not so hard-headed. But I also pray that this God who could love Jacob so much can also love me. I'm a bit of a rascal myself.